It's Friday on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And Fridays mean we have a lot to talk about. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Layla Tassi and Jen Cahoon. Happy Friday. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Friday. Let's get rolling. What's the latest attack on the refusal by Ohio cities to stop collecting income taxes from stay-at-home workers who have not stepped foot in their borders during the pandemic? Leila Tassi, I keep waiting for the great reckoning on this because there is no constitutional authority to collect money from people who don't have anything to do with you. And yet they continue to collect it. What's the latest legal maneuver to try and stop this? So the latest is that uh, the Buckeye Institute, which just celebrated one victory in court in Columbus on this issue, is suing the city of Cleveland for continuing to withhold income tax from a a doctor who lives in Pennsylvania and hasn't set foot in the city in a year. So the suit is asking the Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court to declare unconstitutional the law that permitted the city to continue collecting from people who were commuters before the pandemic forced everybody to stay home. So the law in question here was part of an emergency bill passed at the start of the pandemic that included one paragraph allowing employers to continue withholding payroll taxes, even though people were working from home. And that provision was was something that employers wanted because they didn't want to have to recalculate withholdings for every employee on short notice. But it, it's supposed to expire 90 days after the state lifts its emergency declaration. But people are so angry about this. You know, as you were saying, you know, the idea of be- behind paying payroll tax to the city where you work is because you're using city services while you're there. You drive on city roads. And if there's an emergency, the city would would send its first responders. But but you should, you know, why should you have to pay for any of that if you've been working from home, especially since you're also paying taxes to your hometown? So, of course, you know, this wouldn't be chump change that the city would lose if oh, the Buckeye Institute prevails. We're talking about you know, Cleveland's income, yeah, yeah, income tax rate is two and a half percent in Cleveland and, and 85 percent of people who work in the city live elsewhere. That would be absolutely devastating. Should we be it, should we be seeking refunds from Cleveland right now or do we need to have, wait until the law is declared unconstitutional? The city has not set up a system for that like Rita has, even though you can't get them yet. The, the thing that the Buckeye Institute has picked in, in, in a clearly outrageous case, it's not only somebody that hasn't stepped foot in Cleveland, they haven't stepped foot in Ohio. It, it's and it's true. And it is preposterous to think that the, the city of Cleveland can, can collect income taxes from people in Philadelphia just because it, it has this paragraph. And like you said, that paragraph was only put in for bookkeeping. It wasn't meant to take money from people. I, I do think that this was going to paralyze cities, but now that the cities are all getting the big stimulus money, they're going to be able to afford it. And the day of reckoning is coming. Columbus did settle, as you said, and it's only one case. It's one person. But I don't think Columbus would have settled had they not done research and realized yeah, we have no grounds to do this. Jen Kuhn, what? why do you think these cases are moving so slowly through the courts? They were filed almost as soon as the pandemic began. That's a good question. I haven't been able to figure that one out. I mean, we have cases, I believe, in Lucas and Hamilton and now Cuyahoga. It's it's you have to believe at some point there's going to be a ruling on one of them. But I I I, I think it's going to take a long time and then it'll probably go all the way up to the Ohio Supreme Court is my bet. So we're going to be waiting a while for those uh, refunds if, you know, assuming they 
declare this law bogus. If you but, think about this, though, it's 40 million in Cleveland. It's probably a similar amount in Columbus. I'm surprised a lawyer hasn't realized there's a great class action suit here because they'd get a significant percentage of that money if they tried to to establish a class of people who've been wronged by this to get their money back. Layla, I, I'm wondering, you know, so you were mentioning the stimulus money. And, yeah, that definitely could could make up the, you know, the gap if if indeed Cleveland fails here. But. What if people don't return to Cleveland to work? You know, I don't know. Do we know? Have we done have we done any kind of analysis about how many employers might just sort of give up their brick and mortar establishment and keep people working remotely? I mean, people are productive at home and it seems to be working for a lot of industries. I mean, what what would happen to Cleveland if if all of that dries up moving forward? I can't imagine employers won't do that because it's it's the bottom line. If you can rent right. one floor of a building instead of eight floors of a building and have most people work from home, why wouldn't you? It's really the greatest scam perpetrated on the workforce by employers at all time. They've taken their the cost of their office space and put it on all of us. And we're glad because it's convenient. So they get blocks of our houses as office space free and clear. They don't have to pay for it. I can't imagine they're not going to continue doing it. We know from our own experience, like you said, people are actually more productive. I guess it's because they're not sitting around the coffee you know, room having a chat, but people are getting stuff done and they like it. They like not commuting. So I think Cleveland is for in for a but change. But we miss right? each other. Yeah, but yeah. we could do that with with a, a few visits a week for for three or four hours to to have the necessary brainstorming and socialization. But I, look, we've asked and our staff does not want to go back to the way it was. And I, we hear that across the country. Nobody wants to go back to the way it was. Most people can see a hybrid form of it. But even in a hybrid form, Cleveland shouldn't get the full 100%. If you're going down into the office two days a week and working from home three days a week, they should get 40% of what you were, were paying before. I just I'm waiting for the day for a judge to rule. So this can, as you said, Jane, go up through the Supreme Court. We'll have to hope that day comes soon. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When Ohio Governor Mike DeWine says he wants to use a big block of the federal stimulus package coming to Ohio, a whopping one billion to pay back money borrowed to pay pandemic unemployment claims. Is it paying for any of that 330 million in fraudulent claims that were paid out? Jane Coon, I think you have a good answer to this, not a bad answer. (laughs) Yeah, this is money that they had to borrow from the federal government to pay traditional claims, not the pandemic assistance that was picked up totally by by the feds. So that $330 million paid to the fraudsters, that was federal money. But what's happened over the years is that Ohio's Unemployment Compensation Fund, which has had solvency problems, had to borrow federal money over the years to be able to pay unemployment benefits when when the limits got stretched as they were last year when so many Ohioans were thrown out of work by the pandemic so Ohio requested a line of credit worth up to 3.1 billion dollars last year during the height of the crisis to help pay you know for this record surge of unemployment claims and they ended up borrowing about 1.5 billion which is what DeWine says they owe now. And I believe that's what he wants to use the stimulus money that comes from the $1.9 trillion American rescue plan from Congress and President Biden, which 
we know DeWine said he would not have voted for because, of course, he's a Republican, but he's not turning down this ton of money that Ohio is is getting from this. So he said he's talked with the, the House Speaker, Bob Cup and Senate President Matt Hoffman, his fellow Republicans, who agreed that some of this federal money should should be used to pay off this debt. And the employers really like it, too, because it would stabilize the economy. They believe it, it, you know, and it wouldn't lead to, you know, higher premiums and all that. Although they've got a big structural problem still. They, they, DeWine says the legislature should tackle a problem that nobody seems to want to tackle over the years. And that's, you know, shoring up the unemployment system, making it solvent and, um, Nobody wants to do that because it's politically unpopular because you got to, you know, raise premiums and cut benefits or some kind of combination of that. This is unfair because you're not going to know the answer to it. But is any of that borrowing date back to 2008? I remember in 08 during the big recession, Ohio had to go and borrow a bunch of money to pay unemployment. And I my recollection is we never paid that back. Um, as a matter of fact, you're talking about the Great Recession. Yeah. Okay. So they had borrowed, they had taken a $3.4 billion federal loan, and I believe they did pay it back, but it took them eight years, uh, plus $257.7 million in interest. Wow, you You did have the answer. I'm so impressed. (laughs) It was in the story, Chris. It was in the story. (laughs) Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is University Hospital's official response in court to accusations by its former embryo lab director? He made big waves last week when he filed an affidavit that said the hospital's incompetence and mismanagement is why 4,000 embryos and eggs run viable in 2018. Layla, does the hospital offer anything specific to refute it? Well, you know, as could be expected, they denied all of the claims made by Dr. Andrew Botnager, who, as you said, served as the director of the embryology lab leading up to this catastrophe in 2018. UH accuses Botnager of basically trying to save himself, truth be damned. They, they pointed out that after learning of the incident, the hospital acted with integrity and worked with families to settle the matter. And they denied Botnager's accusations that the lawyers hired by UH pressured him to lie during depositions or ordered another witness to falsify a report. Botnager had, had made all those claims last week in an affidavit filed with a, a motion requesting to sever himself from the hospital's legal team. I think this is one of the last lawsuits brought against UH with regards to the embryo disaster. So this is an interesting turn of events, given that so many cases have settled and now we're just we're just now hearing this other this other half of the story that hadn't been told. But as far as I can tell, it it did not seem that there were, as you said, more specificities, a lot of denials of the accusations made against the, the hospital system. Denials in big, big, mean spirited language. I mean, they said lots of mean things about Botnager. But what was surprising is Botnager's affidavit was very specific. He talked about the competence level. He talked about how a worker refused to take a delivery of the the chemicals needed to keep the the embryo refrigerators working. His thing was loaded with detail that was very specific. And when you read through what university hospitals provided, it's more like nana nana boo boo. They just say no, right. no, no, it didn't happen. But there's nothing specific to say no, no, that's not how it happened. This is how it happened, and this is why he's responsible. They say he's doing this 
to to cover his responsibility, but they never really say what his responsibility is. So right. it looked like they almost disguised their lack of detail with over the top language. Right, right. And I think, you know, Botnager has he's said he's acknowledged that he's had trouble finding work in a while because he's been kind of uh, tied up in this and his reputation has been besmirched by his involvement in this. So I think they're they're kind of throwing it on him, saying that he's just trying to save his hide by making the accusations that he has. But yeah, you're right. There there weren't good answers from from the hospital system as to the things that they've been that they've been accused of. But there will be paperwork, I'm sure, that will show whether he's telling the truth. I mean, if a company tried to deliver the liquid nitrogen that they need in the tanks and they couldn't deliver it, there'll be a record of that. And mm-hmm. so you can say deny, 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 but what does the record show? And I, it'll be interesting to see. A judge has set a hearing on this, I think, for next week. Is that right? And and that'll be the beginning of uh, the reconciliation. So we'll yeah, see. yeah. And I'm I'm assuming that by now they're deep in the discovery of this case. So maybe they hopefully they already have those kinds of records in hand. OK, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. With all of the talk we have had to listen to for much of the past year about how much Ohio Governor Mike DeWine loves a good fair, why wasn't he upset Thursday to learn that this year's Ohio State Fair will again be closed to the public? Jane Coon, this one took me aback because he had announced in a big way fairs will go on this year. Two days later, not the Ohio State Fair. Right, right. Well, Make no mistake, he's not happy about the Ohio State Fair not being open to the public this year. But it is interesting. As you said, a few days ago, he lifted this ban on mass outdoor gatherings, saying all the county fairs could go forward, festivals, sporting events, and the like. And then on Thursday, we find out the state fair is going to be close to the public. They're they're still going to have the competitions for the exhibitors, their their families and guests. So the kids should be able to show their little lambs and other animals, you know, and I'm sure that makes the governor very happy. But no rides, concerts, you know, food vendors. So this is not just because of concern over spreading the coronavirus. It's because of the cost of the coronavirus safety measures and the financial challenges of putting on such a big event that probably would not attract the level of crowds that it has in the past. And they would have to lower the seating capacity to distance groups of people if they had like big entertainment. So they just wouldn't have the draw and then they would suffer financially. So, but DeWine did say he's comfortable with this decision because he thinks the state fair is unique in its size and the money challenges that they have. So he... (laughs) He might recommend that they give some of that federal stimulus money to the fair, you know, not just the unemployment system. So and uh, fair officials said they they hope to have like a full fair next year. Now, Chris, one thing that's still up in the air, and I know you're worried about this, is whether they're going to have a butter cow. Yeah. No, we don't know that yet. Butter cow. Can I jump (laughs) in, please? This is Layla Tassi. You know what? (laughs) I, 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 for one. And really pleased to see them make this decision for the good of the public. When when DeWine lifted those restrictions, he said he's counting on us all to just practice common sense when it comes to attending events, wear masks if it's crowded, practice social distancing. Doesn't he know half the state lacks common sense? I mean, <laughs> state lawmakers just stripped him of his power to protect us in future public health emergencies. Those lawmakers represent Ohioans with no common sense. They're not wearing masks. They're not getting vaccinated. 
And I guarantee you they would all be at the state fair. So can we just agree <laughs> that this was a great move on the part of the But Layla, they'll be going to the county fairs. <laughs> I, I think I think by the time of the state fair it would have taken place that we may have been in a place where we wouldn't have had to worry about that as much. But it sounds like the state fair can't gamble on that, that they need right. a certain attendance level to make their nut. And and if we're not there, if we all of a sudden had a Michigan experience where cases were out of control, they'd have very tight restrictions. But Ohio is moving along. We're vaccinating a lot of people pretty quickly. So by midsummer, you would think that most people who want to be vaccinated will be vaccinated, which gets back to what Wayne was saying. There's a whole bunch of people in Ohio that are that are anti-vaxxers that will be exposed to the virus for as long as it's circulating. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are some of the suspected reasons that our neighbor to the north, the state of Michigan, is the nation's biggest hotspot for the coronavirus, while Ohio is not seeing much of an increase in cases? It's fairly steady. Leila Tassi, this is an odd one because we border each other, and it is really a tale of two states. Yes. So Michigan, it seems, has seen a spike in cases among school children. And also, you know, the infamous and highly contagious COVID variant has been running rampant there. Michigan is leading the nation in number of cases, case rates, and the percentage of inpatient beds that are being used for COVID-19. Their positivity rate in cases have been climbing for weeks. Their death rate has increased 75% since March. By contrast, as you said, our outlook is really encouraging. The 21-day trend for deaths has dropped and it's leveling off for for number of cases, hospitalizations and ICU admissions. But, you know, I'm pretty alarmed by all of this. I mean, we, like you said, we're neighbors with them. And Julie did a great job breaking down all the components of what might have contributed to this trend. But for the most part, Ohio has been making many of the same calls about lifting restrictions. The suggestion that transmission in Michigan among young school children is at an all-time high having quadrupled from a month ago, that's that's really scary to me. They're saying that's on account of indoor sports. We've got kids playing all kinds of indoor sports here. I, I mean, my daughter brought home a flyer from school trying to convince us to sign her up for the wrestling team. <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've got people packing into bars and restaurants just like Michigan. We And even though we've vaccinated more people, it sounds like they've got us beat on percentage of the population that's been vaccinated, which is really the data that I would assume would count. So I find this to be extremely troubling, and I hope it's not a, a, uh, a marker of what's around the corner for us. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's, it's an odd one. I do get the feeling that Michigan has a higher percentage of people that, that didn't believe in the precautions and, and were anti-mask, and so maybe that population has been more reckless than the population in Ohio. The idea that school kids are doing it is strange because we've had school kids back in school since January, for the most part, and we have not seen the spread by school kids at all. I, w did, I wonder, Michigan probably did not vaccinate teachers the way Ohio did. Ohio moved very quickly and early to vaccinate teachers, and now Joe Biden is trying to get that done. I wonder if that had a difference. I wonder if the kids... The spread goes through teachers. It's very odd because we are right next to each other. You can look at other states that are fairly low and say, you know, does it have something to do with weather? Texas and California are not raging. And that seems strange, but but they're pretty low. 
but we're right next to Michigan, and the fact that we're not having the same experience is very strange. I hope you're wrong, Layla. I hope it doesn't mean that's where we are headed. Although, as Jane Cahoon has pointed out, week after week after week, things are getting worse. So, <laughs> yes, they are. We'll hope. We'll hope that that turns. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine decide to ship 5,000 extra doses of the coronavirus vaccine to Cuyahoga County? And did any other county benefit from this kind of movement? Jen Cahoon, we had criticized the governor for having a surplus of vaccine in rural areas while we were wanting. He's finally starting to address that. Right. Last week, he said he would do this. He said that the state would shift some allocations of vaccine doses from places with lower demand to places with higher demand. And that's and also to places that were experiencing surges in cases. So on Thursday, he said that both Cuyahoga County and Lucas County received an additional 5,000 coronavirus vaccine doses because of that high demand and also because of concern over these fast spreading variants. As we know, Cuyahoga and Lucas are both on the northern border of our state and closer to Michigan, the state we were just talking about that is a national hotspot for for cases. So that could be one reason for that. What what are we at now? Just over one out of three uh, eligible people are vaccinated? In yeah, Ohio? yeah. We're up to a third, I believe, received the first dose. Just, oh, that's just the first dose. I thought it was. I, I'm uh, pretty sure, you know, someone I'm sure will correct me if I'm wrong. Are they still kind of thinking that by July 4th, will everybody who wants to be vaccinated will be vaccinated? He talked a little bit about that this week. Yeah, I think they, you know, they're they're moving fast. So I I believe so. I don't think there's anything big that's going to slow them down. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Destination Cleveland is going to do something very different during the NFL draft, something aimed less at tourism and more at long-term economic vitality of the region. Lila Tassi, what is their message going to be? (laughs) Well, they're going to take total advantage of this moment to sell the city. The Tourism Bureau is pouring 250 grand into a marketing campaign geared toward enticing people who are watching the draft to visit, to schedule a group or a corporate trip to Cleveland, or even choose Cleveland as their home. And that prong of the campaign is called Cleveland Wants to Draft You. (laughs) It's a digital campaign that will target people in at least eight markets, including Columbus and Philly, Atlanta, New York, Nashville, Washington, D.C., Denver, and Seattle. They want to find out how people react to different content and messaging about Cleveland. The messages might focus on career opportunities. It's the low cost of living here cultural amenities, sporting events, outdoor attractions. They kind of want to see what resonates with people and sort of bank that data for future marketing. They've also launched a campaign to attract visitors to to town for the event, of course. And there's another portion of the campaign that targets meeting planners who have been invited to the draft experience in Cleveland to see the city firsthand They'll get to tour meeting facilities here, and then there will be a reception for them at the Rock Hall. But, you know, there's still a lot we don't know about how this event is going to play out in Cleveland. You know, who's headlining these concerts each night? They're not really giving Destination Cleveland a whole lot to work with here when it comes to selling the event to people. No, no, but 
There's 55 million people watch this last time, I think, is the number. And what, what they want to do is, is use all those cameras on Cleveland for those 55 million for the first time to say, please move here. There was, there's been talk for years that Destination Cleveland has done a very, very good job bringing tourists to Cleveland. Numbers went up every year before the pandemic. And so there have been a lot of people in town saying, why doesn't Destination Cleveland make it a permanent destination and get, get going on bringing residents here? We've talked a couple of times in recent weeks about our remote workers from other cities coming here, and it's not so much. So that, that's, a, that's a cool strategy that's unprecedented to say to people who are looking at, you know, the, the terminal tower when it's lit up and all the, the cliche spots that you see on camera when the sports guys are here and say, you, you want to live here. In the past, it's been, you want to visit here and spend money on a restaurant. That's a big deal. Yeah, I agree. And especially, you know, as we were discussing earlier, we might be entering this era where more people are free to work remotely in perpetuity. And if that's the case, maybe they don't need to be stationed in where, you know, whatever town they're headquartered in, wherever their corporate headquarters is. Maybe they can come and move to Cleveland and work remotely from here and enjoy enjoy this place and its low cost of living. So so yeah, I think the moment is right for that kind of that kind of campaign. I'm just saying that, you know, when it comes to the prong of their campaign that's selling the NFL draft experience event to people to try to get them to come here for this event, which they've said like hundreds of thousands of people flood to whatever host city it is. I mean, all we've heard about so far is that you're going to get to do a vertical jump against a hologram of an NFL player (laughs) and, you know, kick, kick a field goal at the stadium. Great. Sell that, you know, come to Cleveland and pull a hammy trying to kick a field goal. That's uh, that's what should be on the top of their banner. (laughs) Yeah, it is. We're getting, what are we, we're not three weeks away now and we still have very little detail about how it's going to work. I expect they'll release some of that soon, but it might be too late to get people to come. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. So when you take the shackles off, people in greater Cleveland will gamble. Jane Cahoon, we had a remarkable month for gambling in Ohio or in Northeast Ohio and Ohio in March. What was it? Well, it's funny. You know, you lift the overnight curfew, you reopen the poker rooms, and then you put a little stimulus cash in people's pockets. And And they uh, wasted. Voila. (laughs) (laughs) So they crushed the previous mark from from a year ago, March, but the the 215.9 million taken in at the 11 casino and racino properties combined after paying out winnings just as I said crushed the previous mark of 184.2 million set in March of 2019 and about a third of that money or about 70 million bucks ends up in the state's hands as fees or taxes. But this included records at both the Jack Thistledown Racino in North Randall and MGM Northfield Park, and the best month in seven years for the Jack Cleveland Casino. Overall, the state's four casinos, which are in Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Toledo, combined for $91.6 million in, in revenue. That topped the mark of $86 million set in July, and that was the first full month of operation after those coronavirus closings from mid-March to mid-June a year ago. And then the seven racinos, which those are limited to those slot machine type things called video lottery terminals. They took in $124.2 million in March, and that topped the record of $103.1 million set in March 2019. 
so yeah, they had a great march. I, the thing that blows my mind about this is as as we get vaccinated, as our shackles are removed, <laughs> sitting in a in a room with you know wearing a mask, surrounded by lucite, not really what I envision for breaking free. But I'm in a minority because a lot of people clearly wanted to do that. And there's benefit for Cleveland and Cuyahoga County. They get a piece of that money. And so when the, there's record set, there's record set in the money that comes to the city and county to be put into economic development. It's funny that they opened an outdoor gambling area. I, I want to say that that was at Thistledown. Yeah. <laughs> and But it's for people who smoke. You know, yeah. This, is, this is depressing to me that this is how everyone's spending their money. Do you guys have you guys ever been to uh, the casino in Cleveland? Chris, yeah. Chris remember when you sent me I there for I a story? Remember when you, <laughs> Chris sent me there to do like a firsthand essay when it first opened because I had never gambled. I'd never set foot in a casino. And so like when I went, I dressed up. My husband and I went. We thought we, you know, we had in our minds that this would be like walking into a James Bond movie or something. <laughs> And I remember like walking in and it's more like you're like in the, you know, you're waiting in line at the DMV or something. Everyone's waiting there to like (laughs) load their cards. And it's just, I don't know. I felt so depressed. (laughs) So I'm I'm sad that this is where the stimulus money is going. It's remarkable that we have not heard of any breakouts of coronavirus that, that stem from the casino. It must say something about the steps they took because you know, people are picking up cards and chips and all sorts of things that are shared. They're all in fairly close quarters, but you just didn't see it. Maybe it was kept secret if it happened, but we didn't see any evidence of it. Oh, and those slot machines, too. Yeah. Yeah, right. So I, <laughs> they did something right, but I not not where I'd We're going to hear from all the gamblers out I'm there. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to offend. <laughs> all right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That wraps up another week of the news here at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs>